Y'all, that's my jam. Y'all don't even know. I've had that song on repeat like all week long. I've probably listened to it 50 times this week. And no, that's not an exaggeration. That's literal. <laughs> so turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be uh, all over Scripture today. So um, some of it will be on the screen behind me. Some of it will not. Uh, truthfully, there was just too much uh, to put back there. And um, so we're going to be all over the Bible today. And, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to follow along with that. We are... Uh, coming towards the end of this series called Uproot. And in this series, we are talking about secret sin. We're talking about uprooting the sin that is in our hearts. So often, we have things that are hidden in our lives. Things that nobody else knows about, things that maybe we've even deceived ourselves about, things that we have downplayed, things that we've kept in the shadows. And we're looking at different places in Scripture where people who have had situations like that, sin that they refuse to repent of, comes back and blows up in a terrible way. And today, we're going to look at the case study of a man named Jehu. Jehu? Don't worry, I'm going to tell you. That's also the first of many times I'm going to use that joke. So prepare yourself for that as well. Uh, Some of you may be a little bit young to remember the 2008 movie, The Dark Knight. Are there any Batman fans in here? Okay, very good. Uh, The Dark Knight was an iconic film. Okay, one of, uh, in my opinion, the best of all time. It it is, in my opinion, one of the best Batman movies. Okay, when, when that movie came out... Um, I was in grad school. Allison was in grad school at the time as well. Um, And this was before we were together, but separately in the same place. um, We both went to see this movie in the theater. I don't know how many times. Over and over and over we went to see this. And and we were poor college students, okay? So, So this meant that we were eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches so that we could afford to go and watch this movie over and over and over in the theater. And in this movie, you have some iconic villains, okay? You have the best Joker who has ever been in any Batman series production, Heath Ledger. Greatest Joker of all time. Um, And then you also have the beginning of Two-Face, played by Aaron Eckhart, okay? So Aaron Eckhart playing Two-Face, Harvey Dent, Uh, in the movie, is the district attorney for Gotham City. And as such, he is a local hero. Harvey Dent is out there putting the criminals away. He is cleansing the city of its filth. Harvey Dent is on the front lines and on the front page of the newspaper as the one who is actively pursuing and prosecuting the criminals of Gotham City. Batman, on the other hand, is a vigilante, but uh, Harvey Dent supports, at least at first, the work of Batman. And so there's this scene in The Dark Knight where Harvey Dent is sitting down at dinner with Bruce Wayne. Of course, not knowing that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And and the ladies that they're at dinner with are, are having a conversation about whether or not Batman should be allowed to continue to be a vigilante. In Gotham City. And, I, and, and Harvey Dent is saying, absolutely, I believe that Batman is necessary. And we're the ones who made him necessary 
in the first place. And the, one of the girls that's sitting there at dinner is like, well, I would rather have somebody like you, you know, on the front lines giving us what we need to fight this battle instead of this masked vigilante. Sorry, I'm messing with my mic here. And there's this iconic line spoken by Harvey Dent about Batman and, and the potential of what Batman might become. He looks at the people at the table and he says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Now, as we know, Harvey Dent lived that line. Harvey Dent was a hero. Harvey Dent was cleansing the city. Harvey Dent was out there doing the good work. But then the evil got to him. And he lived long enough to see himself become a villain and fought against the very good that he defended for the early part of his life. What we're going to see today in the scriptures is the story of a man who, much like Harvey Dent, started out well. He started out cleansing the city. He started out on the front lines as the battle warrior who was going against the enemies. He, like Harvey Dent, was prosecuting, as it were, those who were against the Most High God. But also, like Harvey Dent, rather than this man dying a hero... He lived long enough to see himself become a villain. All because the very evil that he was supposed to be cleansing got to him. And he also became two-faced. And his two-faced righteousness ends up being passed on through the generations, extending to the rest of the history of Israel And it all could have been prevented. It all could have been prevented if only he had completely cleansed the unrighteousness. Instead of just cleansing part of it. Hopefully what we will also see in ourselves this evening is a tendency to do just that. That we cleanse part of the unrighteousness in our hearts, but we leave enough of it behind that it poisons us uh, as time goes on. So, turning your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9, and the first place that we'll be looking at in Scripture is verses 1 through 13. Like I said, we're going to be all over Scripture today. Um, We're going to be mainly in the book of 2 Kings, but we're also going to hit up uh, a couple of other books as well. So, 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have word for you, O commander. 
And Jehu said, to which of us all? Or in a modern translation, and Jehu said, to Jehu. And he said, to you, Jehu. So he arose and went into the house. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm going I'm to do this over and over. So just get ready. The young man poured the oil onto his head, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That's not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and said, Jehu is king. Jehu? The king, after all. So, let's talk about a little bit of history that's going on here and who is Jehu. Well, Jehu is a commander in the army, specifically the army of Israel under the leadership of King Ahab. At the time, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel are leading the northern kingdom, and they are among the most wicked leaders in the history of Israel. They are named by God as doing more evil in his sight than any of the kings before them. His wife Jezebel comes on the scene and the very first thing that Jezebel does is she sends out a command in the land to seek out the prophets of the Lord and to have them killed. So she immediately comes to power and her first move is let's eliminate all of the prophets of the Lord. And these two are known in their lifetime almost exclusively for their pagan idolatry, specifically in the worship of Baal. So Baal worship comes to its, its pinnacle under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel. 1 Kings 16.33 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Not a great legacy, Right? God himself says, this was the most evil king that has been so far. Um, when Jezebel sent out word to the, uh, the army to seek out the prophets and to have them killed, we know that some of them remained safe because of the work of the, the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah took some of those prophets and he hid them in the caves to rescue them. During this time, the main prophet in Israel was a guy named Elijah. And we know Elijah from some of the more famous stories in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, the story at, at Mount Carmel. 
where Elijah squares off against the prophets of Baal. And he sets up two altars and, and he says, we're going to have a competition, okay? Whoever's God is real is going to win the competition. Let's set up these two altars and then let's call down fire from heaven. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God. And whoever speaks and sends down fire is the true God. And of course, we know as that story goes that the prophets of Baal are going on and on and on and on and on and nothing ever happens. And Elijah is over in the corner talking trash. Maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe your God went to the bathroom. And then at the end of this scene, Elijah calls out to the Lord and God sends down fire and consumes the entire altar. And so Elijah at this time is is preeminent as the voice of the Lord. Well, Elijah is told uh, that, that Ahab is going to be killed in battle. He prophesies that Ahab's reign will come to an end. Ahab does get killed in battle, exactly how Elijah prophesied. And his entire regime eventually will be wiped out, as, as we're going to see. And so at that time, God tells Elijah to anoint three men into leadership roles, okay? Hazael as a king uh, of the area of Aram, Jehu here as the king of Israel, and Elisha as his successor. And so Elisha becomes the new prophet in Israel. So Jehu is chosen by God to take over the kingship. And when he is, he's given this mission. You are to go into Jezreel. Jezreel was the capital city uh, of the kingdom where Ahab and and Jezebel were. You are to go into Jezreel and you are to wipe out the sons of Ahab. You are to wipe out his dynasty. And so in the next chapters, we find Jehu carrying out this mission. Jehu begins to assassinate sons of Ahab. Uh, in the very next scene in, in, in chapter 9, there are two sons that, uh, that Jehu comes against. Uh, the first is Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. I'm sorry, Joram. Uh, Joram has been uh, 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 injured in battle and now he's recovering in the city of Jezreel. And Jehu marches against the city and he, he has... The, the king come out to him. And so in verse 21, Joram, the king, uh, says, make ready. And they make ready his chariot. And so Joram, king of Israel, and Azahiah, king of Judah, set out each in their own chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Azahiah, Treachery, O Azahiah! And Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up, throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. 
And so he kills the first son of Ahab. Then he turns his attention to Azahiah, the king of Judah, and he assassinates Azahiah, the king of Judah. Beginning in verse 30 of of chapter 9, he goes into Jezreel and he sees Jezebel. And Jezebel, looking down from her upper rooms, looks down at him and says, "Uh, do you come in peace? And Jehu looks up and, and, and he looks at her aides that are with her and he says, who's with me? Is anyone loyal to me? And, and two guys step forward and he tells them, take her and throw her down to me. And so they pick her up and they throw her off the balcony. So she falls down to the balcony and it says that Jehu runs his chariot over her. And then he goes into her castle and he eats dinner. It's a boss move. At the end of dinner, He says, all right, somebody go out and bury Jezebel. But according to the prophecy spoken by the Lord, Jezebel's body has been eaten by the dogs. And so this process continues, right? He goes after every single member of Ahab's dynasty exactly as the Lord commanded. In chapter 10, there are 70 sons in Samaria. Ahab assassinates them all. And then at the end of chapter 10, we find what's perhaps the most important thing that he does. He strikes down the prophets of Baal. He goes after Baal worship, just like Elijah did, right? And and this scene is brilliant in the way that, that he does this. He does a cunning trick. He tricks all the prophets of Baal. He goes in and he, he says to the people, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. So he goes out and he tells the people, you guys think that Ahab served Baal a lot? I will serve Baal even more. So assemble to me. Therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer Baal. Whoever's missing shall not live. So he's like, send out the word to the people. We're going to have the biggest worship service for Baal that there ever has been. We're going to blow out of the water anything that Ahab has ever done. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. Verse 20, Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. So all of the the worshipers of Baal, the priests, everybody gathers for this big worship service. Verse 22, he said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out all the vestments for them. Then Jehu went to the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, And he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. There better not be anybody faithful to God in here, because if there is, I'm going to come after them. Verse 24, then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now, Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, the man who allows any of these whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he made an end of the offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal 
and burned it. I love this. Verse 27, one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. So Jehu gathers all of the worshipers of Baal, all of the priests of Baal. He says, we're going to have a big worship service. Make sure everybody's here. Nobody's allowed to miss it. They all gather inside the house and there's soldiers surrounding it. And he goes out and he tells the soldiers, all right, I got all the Baal worshipers in there. Go in and kill them. And so they slaughter all of the priests and the worshipers of Baal and they tear the house down and they turn it into a public toilet. They desecrate it. They, they make it the most dishonorable place in all of Israel. This is one of the most boss moves in the history of the kingdom. You cannot have more of a heroic scene than the man that God sends goes in and defeats the enemy and then he says, all of Israel, welcome to your new toilet. <laughs> it's awesome, right? Verse 28, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from all Israel. At this point in the story, Jehu is Harvey Dent. Jehu is Harvey Dent because he is at the front lines eliminating the enemies. He's at the front lines eliminating those who are set up against the word of God. He is eliminating Baal worship, eliminating this form of idolatry in the land, so much so that he makes a desecration of it. And had the story stopped there, Jehu would have died a hero. Unfortunately, the story does not stop there. And instead of dying a hero, Jehu lives long enough to see himself become the villain. Right after this verse, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, comes verse 29 of chapter 10. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So even though he eliminated Baal worship, zealously, passionately, with all of his might, it says he did not, however, turn from idolatry. Because even he continued in the worship of the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So in this hand, the sin is fought against. And in this hand, the sin is worshipped. In this good part of his face, he fights against the evil. But on this part of his marred and mangled face, he is the evil that he seems to fight against. He is two-faced. We're going to look a little bit uh, as we go on what exactly this form of worship was. But I want to begin by saying this. That one of the greatest tools of the enemy is just a sin trade. One of the greatest tools that the enemy has in his arsenal is a sin trade. 
If you can eliminate lust, but replace it with pride, Satan will take that trade seven days a week. He does not care what sin it is that's in your life. If you're trapped in sin, if you're relying on your own power, it doesn't matter if you've defeated one, if you replace it with another. And what Jehu does is he eliminates one sin and it's replaced with another one. As we are going through this process of uprooting sin, we need to be careful that we don't allow some sins to get swept under the rug. While we're addressing the big ones and the obvious ones, it's so easy for us to look at other things and go, that's really no big deal. It's easy for us to look at those things and say, well, well, that stuff doesn't matter as much as this stuff. So I'm going to take care of this stuff. This stuff is okay. That's exactly what Jehu did. And what we're going to see is that it has catastrophic consequences. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Repentance is always costly. Repentance is always costly. So, when we see what his sin was, Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam. We have to ask the question, of course, what were the sins of Jeroboam? For that, we turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 12. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we find... The kingdom of Israel, which was at that point a unified kingdom, is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Rehoboam is anointed the king over the northern kingdom, and, and, uh, and Jeroboam is, is uh, appointed king over the southern kingdom. So, the kingdom is divided. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the city of Judah. So Rehoboam takes over the north kingdom. Then in verse 25, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And remember this word, Ephraim, okay? Remember, it starts with Ephraim. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. In other words, here's what's going on. This is a pivotal point in history. And Jeroboam realizes if the people are faithful to the Lord, then what's going to happen is the divided kingdom is going to reunify and I'm going to lose my power. I've been given kingship over this portion of the divided nation if the people decide we are all going to be faithful to the Lord, well, they're going to go worship God and Rehoboam will be king and I will lose out my power. I've got to do whatever I can to prevent that. So the king took counsel 
and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam, because he is in in power and doing whatever he can to keep his power, he says to the people of Israel, don't go up to Jerusalem any longer. Worship here. These golden calves, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. It is intentionally pointing back into the Exodus when the people of Israel worshipped a golden calf and said, here is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Knowing that surrender to the Lord would mean the end of his reign, he sacrificed his own people for his own selfish gain. So then, going back to 2 Kings, What did Jehu do? Jehu, instead of ridding the nation of this divisive idolatry, continued to indulge in it himself. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And so, like Jeroboam, He followed the commands of God only as far as it was convenient to him. He he eliminated Baal, but he kept the sins of Jeroboam. He eliminated Baal and he kept the golden calves. He did this zealously cleansing the nation of one sin without ever addressing an equally evil other sin. Oftentimes, we follow the commands of God that are convenient to us. We follow the commands of God that don't really cost us everything. It has the appearance of costing us. It has the appearance of righteousness, but we slink into the shadows, into the sins that we have hidden there, and we keep them under the guises of the righteousness that we show everybody else. Charles Spurgeon, when he reflected on this passage, said this, hating one sin, he loved another, and thus proved that the fear of the Most High did not reign in his chest. He was merely a hired servant and received the throne as his wages, but a child of God he never was. Charles Spurgeon points at Jehu and says that this guy was no more than a hired hand from God because in his heart, he was never faithful to the Lord. 
In his heart, he was only willing to give to God what would benefit him. Because what did Jehu receive when he eliminated Baal? Kingship. What did Jehu receive when he did this thing that God asked him to do? Power. Which is exactly what Jeroboam got. And just like Jeroboam, that power became what was most important in his life. He did not walk in the law of the Lord. We read uh, a little bit later on in chapter 10, where it says, The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. God rewards Jehu because he did what he asked by saying, you get four generations of power. After that, it's done. Verse 31, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Another commentator speaking on this passage said that by not taking heed to walk in the law of the Lord God, he showed that he did not have true fellowship with God. He was a success in one regard, but a successful failure. And so he says, how terrible a warning is the story of this man, that it is possible to be an instrument in the hand of God and yet never be in fellowship with him. What might be a modern example how, how might we picture this today? Well, we've already talked about one example in this series, Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias zealously defended the truth of God's word publicly, brilliantly. He zealously and remarkably defended Christianity against the claims of atheism and secular humanism, demonstrating with brilliance how the Bible is logical and true and reasonable. Out in front, he was a bastion of light for truth. But like Jehu, he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord. Like Jehu, he did not turn from the sin of idolatry. And in the shadows, he hid this destructive sin that destroyed the lives of people around him and is rippling across the entire planet. My friends, repentance is always costly because we don't just give to God what is easy. We don't just give to God the, the things on the surface. We must give God everything. We must not allow there to be anything hidden in the shadows because if it does it will have a ripple effect that affects not only our lives, but countless other lives after us. This is point number two. Unrepentant sin creates a ripple effect. Unrepentant sin creates a ripple effect. The sin that Jehu held in his heart gets passed down to the next generations. Remember here in chapter 10 that God promises that 
For four generations, Jehu's descendants will sit on the throne because Jehu did in that regard what God had asked him to do. And and here's what we can't forget, okay? In this spot, as Jehu was ridding the land of idolatry in Baal worship, he could have also rid the land of the golden calf worship. He could have done both, but he didn't. And so, let's look at the four generations that come after Jehu. The four generations of Jehu are Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah. And where we fit in the timeline here, the latter of those two kings are in power at the time of Hosea the prophet, which we're going to go to um, in just a little bit. Um, Here's what is said about these men, okay? Look at chapter 13. Chapter 13 in 2 Kings, we find this written about Jehoahaz. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Azahiah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. Look at what it says in verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Same verse, okay? That's exactly how Jehu is described. So his son takes power and his son does the very same thing that Jehu did. Next, we look at Jehoash in chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. We seeing a trend here? I I bet you can guess what happens next when we look at Jeroboam the second in chapter 14. Verses 23 and 24, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what? What was evil in the sight of the Lord? He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. One more. The fourth generation. Fourth guy. Chapter 15. Zechariah. Verses 8 and 9. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. All four generations... All four generations of Jehu did the exact same thing that Jehu did. They prioritized in their life what their father had prioritized. They followed in the footsteps of their ancestors. And so we have to ask the question, when when we look at those four generations and what they did, what would have changed 
what would have been different? How would this have been so much better if Jehu, when he eliminated Baal worship in the land, had also eliminated the worship of these golden calves? How different would it have been for Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah? It could have been so much different. It could have been so much better. Instead, his succeeding generations did exactly what he did. And not just them. These same descriptions are used of so many other kings. This this verse that says, He did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That same verse is repeated over and over and over and over throughout the book of 2 Kings. It didn't have to. If Jehu would have done the right thing, it would not have gone that way. This this trickle-down effect led to generations of disobedience, generations of sin, and ultimately what it leads to is Israel being exiled. Israel is exiled. So now turn to chapter 17. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 23. So I want you to see where this ends up. Okay, because so often we think, if I just have this sin over in the corner, I'm the only one that's affected by it. Okay, this, this is a personal thing. It only affects me. That's a lie. This is where Jehu's sin ends up for all of the people, okay? Chapter 17, beginning in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. So Samaria, again, the capital city of the kingdom. Assyria comes and captures Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah. And on Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, under the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord said to them, you shall not do this. Yet, The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers, that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. 
And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. That is the end result of unrepentant sin. That is the end result of sin that's only halfway dealt with. What started with Jeroboam could have ended with Jehu. Instead, Jehu continued it, and it led to generation after generation after generation of sin in all of the ways that these people were unfaithful. And finally, they get handed over to the Assyrian Empire. Assyria invades, takes over, brings these uh, members of the northern kingdom into exile in Assyria. It didn't have to be that way. Unrepentant sin creates a ripple effect. And God judges sin. That's the bad news. But as always, my friends, there is good news. There is great news. Point number three. God never gives up on two-face or his two-faced children. God never gives up on two-face or on his two-faced children. One of the things that I love about the Bible is how all of the different pieces connect. And sometimes we read things in scripture and we go, okay, moving on, that doesn't mean anything to me. But what we see is fascinating is, is when these pieces that seem so random connect together. So turn now in the scriptures to the book of Hosea. As I said before, when we talk about those four generations that come after Jehu, the latter of those four, the last two kings, were in power at the time that Hosea was prophesying in Israel. So these last two kings, Jeroboam II and Zechariah, are among the kings that are in power when Hosea is speaking the word of the Lord to the people. So Hosea, as we know, is given this weird job by God. God tells him to go and marry a prostitute. Because what this is going to be is an object lesson for Israel. 
as he marries this woman who's going to be unfaithful to him, it's a word picture. It's an experiential analogy. As they watch him in his marriage to someone unfaithful, and they sit back and scratch their heads and say, why would you marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful to you? Why would you marry a harlot? Hosea's words to the people are, this is an example of what you have done with God. Okay, You are the harlot who has been unfaithful to the Lord. And so we pick up in Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's Jeroboam II. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of the Lord. And on that day... I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, you may be saying, wait a second. Why does he say here that he's going to judge the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel? Isn't that what he commanded? Wasn't Jehu sent to wipe out the dynasty of Ahab in Jezreel. So why here does it say, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel? Jezreel, as we remember, is the military capital of the northern kingdom. The actual capital from where Jehu reigned is Samaria. And here's what's going on. Okay, God is not judging Jehu for his obedience to the command to cleanse Jezreel of Ahab and Jezebel's dynasty and the Baal worship that accompanied it. God is judging Jehu for the idolatry that we just discussed that leads to all of those people in Jezreel meeting the judgment of God. That is the blood of Jezreel that's on Jehu's head. Jehu could have eliminated the idolatry and he didn't. And so all the blood that comes from Assyria is the blood of Jezreel on his head. Also, the blood that he shed in in ridding the land of Ahab ultimately is shed for nothing. It ends up being an empty gesture, pointless bloodshed. Because from Jezreel, idolatry still reigned. And for that idolatry, Israel will be judged. And again... Judgment comes from the Assyrian Empire. Hosea also talks about this in chapter 11. Go to Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. And remember that I said before to remember the name Ephraim. It comes up again here. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, 
Ephraim being the largest tribe in the kingdom, being the place that this all started, this, this place where Jeroboam began, okay, this becomes a, a term that's used to describe Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And so again, the Assyrians invade the southern kingdom. They enslave the Israelites and they bring them to exile. But now I want to lead you to the good news, okay? The good news in all of this is that God never gives up on Two-Face. God never gives up on Two-Face's children. Even as the Israelites are continuing over and over and over to be unfaithful in their idolatry, even as they are given over to their enemies because of their sin, I want you to see the heart of God toward the people, toward the very people that Jehu led. Jehu, the guy who got us in trouble in the first place. Look at the heart of God. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 through 11, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God says, I cannot give up on you. I can't, I can't let you go. My, my compassion grows warm and tender. My heart recoils within me. I see you in your unfaithfulness. I see you in your unrepentance. I see the ways that you keep being unfaithful and idolatry, but yet I cannot give up on you. It gets even more incredible. Guys, I've, I've told you before, that Jesus is on every single page of the Bible. He's everywhere. And Jesus is here. Let me show you exactly how God takes this promise, this promise that he makes in Hosea chapter 11, where he says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. I cannot give you up. I am going to rescue you. I am going to save you. Briefly, to understand this, we have to touch on another exile, the Babylonian exile, okay? In the book of Jeremiah, the southern kingdom, Judah, is invaded by Babylon and taken into captivity, right? And so from that story, from the Babylonian exile, we have stories like Daniel and the lion's den. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or for you VeggieTales fans, Rakshak and Benny. The book of Nehemiah, okay? In the book of Nehemiah specifically, we see the exiles in Babylon returning to Jerusalem to rebuild, okay? They are given official permission by the Babylonian king to go back home. That's the Babylonian exile. But that's not what happens to the northern kingdom of Israel in the Assyrian exile. The Israelite exiles aren't ever sent back by themselves. Turn back into 1 Kings 17. I'm sorry, 2 Kings 17, where we were before. And look at verse 24. The king of Assyria... Okay, let me, let me back up to, to verse 23. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all of his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So exiled to Assyria. Verse 24, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So what this tells us is that many of the Israelites who inhabited the land after this exile are intermarried with these other people groups. Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamas, Sepharvaim. They, they, they're brought back, not by themselves, but with these other people. Now, some of them eventually make it back to Jerusalem. And the way that we know that is that Babylon is eventually overtaken by Assyria. Um, and, and so exiles from Babylon that go back are some of those Assyrian exiles as well. But there were Israelites that returned from the Assyrian exile, resettle in the land, and intermarry with the peoples. And that capital city of the northern kingdom remains and is repopulated. And what is that capital city? Samaria. And who were the people that lived there? They would come to be known simply as Samaritans, hated by the Jews for being mixed people. But they are still loved by God long after this point. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 tells us the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. This is a shock because, as John chapter 4 verse 9 says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But in this scene, Jesus loves this woman and he invites her and her people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Look at what he says in verses 21 through 26. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, 
I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see what's going on here? Guys, this this conversation in John chapter 3 is God keeping his promise from Hosea 11, which he made after the sin that was committed in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings by the leaders of the people of Israel. It's all connected. Jeroboam is driven by a lust for power, and he sacrifices his own people to idols in order to keep that power. Jehu could have driven out this idolatry, but instead he only drives out the parts that benefited him. And he passed down the same idolatry to his children. Generations of people are affected by this sin, but God loves them too much to give up on them. He promised that the Holy One would be in their midst and roar like a lion to save them. And he keeps that promise with the Lion of Judah who walks straight into the city of Jehu and speaks salvation to Jehu's descendants. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? I want you to put your name in that sentence. How can I give up on you, Daryl? How can I hand you over, Nicole? How can I give up on you, Allison? How can I hand you over, Kayla? God sees all of the sin in our lives and yet loves us so much that he would lay down his own life in order to save us. Like Jeroboam wasn't willing to do. Like Jehu wasn't willing to do. Like any of his sons were not willing to lay down their power for their people, Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we have to make a choice. Will we be like Jehu, only dealing with the parts of our lives that don't cost us anything? Only giving to God what is convenient for us to give to him? Or will we follow his beckoning when he asks us to give everything, leaving nothing held back, leaving nothing unsurrendered, leaving nothing held in our tight grasp in the shadows. Do not be a two-face because you can live long enough to worship the hero or you can live long enough to die as a villain. The choice is yours. Christ in his love calls you to repentance. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth.